So, First uh, Corinthians chapter one. I'm going to back up just a little bit and read the whole context, um, so that we we kind of don't jump into the middle of the uh, the section of verses, uh, talking about unity. Uh, so he says, uh, beginning in verse ten, he says, "Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and same judgment." For it has been declared to me, brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And that's kind of where we, we left off in terms of uh, discussing the, the contentions and divisions in this church. But he continues, he says, as Christ divided, was Paul crucified for you, or... Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one says, well, I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I did baptize the household of Stephanus also. But other than that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, or else the cross of Christ would be made of no effect. So, um... How is verse 17 often used, if you've heard it used and quoted? What is the... See, I don't need to be baptized, because Paul didn't come to baptize. All right, real quick, what is this saying? That wasn't his job. Yes. He was sent for a specific purpose, and other people can do other things, but this is what I was Right, to do. okay. To me, I feel like he was also kind of saying, you know, that I don't have any specific merit because of who I was baptized by. Okay. If there's a statement about baptism here, that's it. It's not important who did it. Right. Now, did Paul baptize? Yes, he lists three families. So he did it. So it's not that God said, uh, well, it's not important. It's just, it's not important uh, who does it. Um, and uh, th- there's been things like, oh, can this person baptize? I, I, uh, a, a good friend of mine, he's a little bit older, actually used to deliver newspapers to his grandmother's house before he was a Christian, which is kind of weird. But um, his name is John McDonald. Uh, he was baptized. Uh, he came to Christ in college. And... Uh, and it was through a, a girl in our church. And they, she kind of liked him, but she's like, no, don't date non-Christians. And he's like, what? <laughs> so he started talking with her, and uh, she started teaching him the gospel. All of a sudden, it came time to, he's like, yeah, yeah, I need to do this. He's, so there was a thing. You know, this is kind of, this is 1983, 82, so... We take it back a little bit. He's like, she's the one who taught me. She should be the one to baptize me. And then, can we do that? Can a girl baptize a guy? And like, is that like holy, or will will he go to hell? Or like, these like, these questions. He's like, fortunately, mine's prevailed, and it doesn't make a difference who does it. It doesn't make a difference. So. Uh, any other thoughts on that? It should. It really, when we read it, it's kind of obvious what it's saying and what it's not saying. Um, 
that is a what we'd call a debating tactic. That's, that's someone using a scripture, not exploring the scripture. So, if someone's interested, the evidence is there. Paul's job was not to baptize. Paul's job was to, con- to, to use the gospel to bring souls to Christ. If you want to look at a similar situation, you can look at Jesus. Jesus came to the Jews. Mm-hmm. He said, I, I wasn't sent here to, to preach to the Gentiles. I was right. to preach to the Jews. But then you can, you can use that as kind of a proof to prove that that's true. You can't. You can't. Just be, I mean, this, right. they're saying the same thing that they're here to do one thing but not another. But clearly, you know, the message was meant for all. So right, right, way. yeah. That's a, that's a really good a good analogy. Um, obviously, God wants Gentiles, but that was not Jesus' primary mission. Um, others can do that. So, um, what would have happened if if Paul would have you think about what's going on in this church and why Paul would have might avoided it. Why would Paul avoid it? I, mean, to, I guess to keep peace. Okay. Imagine if you've got a group of people. We've already seen some people that were of Paul. Look, I'm, and it's obvious that it's not these three families, right? He kind of refers to these families as as slightly more. Mature. Maybe he was trying to stop favoritism. Right. I mean, if you've got people that say, well, we are of Paul because we are the group that was baptized with Paul and we're special holy people. Right? The only people that could have said that didn't, likely. So, um, Crispus and Gaius, we know uh, from, from the book of Acts, and, and they these were more prominent men, uh, more mature men. So, so I want to move into... Um, Verse 18, uh, beginning. Um, let's see. Here. Just a second. Where am I going through? So let's go through the end of the chapter. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Whereas the wise or the scribe or the disputer of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, didn't know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's a mouthful, and it's like it's one of those word, verses that you just can't sort out grammatically in English. Um, so, I mean, you can't put it in an order that it makes sense quickly. So we'll get back to verse 21. The Jews requested a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, he, that's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, that's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, but because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise are called according to the according to the flesh, and not many mighty. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things or common things 
which are despised, God's chosen, and the things which aren't, to bring to nothing the things that are. No flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we want to talk again about competing interests. Yes. Sorry, just real quick to go back to the last section. I, I have to wonder if it also was a product of their um, society at the time, because you know they, they go in, you know, talking about scholars and looking for wisdom, mm-hmm. and you have all these philosophers and things like that going around. You know, you have very competing philosophies as to. You know, this person stands up and says this, and this person stands up and says that. When I follow this person, I follow this philosophy. Yes. Or even like, you know, the the pantheon of different gods where they were followers of different gods. They were used to doing like that. Yeah, that's... They weren't used to having something that was actually supposed to be one unified... Unified, right. A lot of people saying the same thing. That's that's true. I mean, they would sit around and debate of this philosophy, and we're actually going to get into that in this section because he introduces the wisdom of this age and various things like that. So I want to look at um, the viewpoint of, of the gospel from, from people. Now, I think in this section he's primarily speaking of people who are not Christians. But I, I think there's an application here even for those who are uh, as, it, as it affects the unity of this church. How do people in the world see the message of the cross? Doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Now, there's two groups of people that he primarily addresses. What are the two groups? Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks. Uh, so, and it's interesting that, that he doesn't say Jews and Gentiles. He specifically references Greeks. Um, and I think that's because, as we said, the proximity to Athens um, and, and the center of, of Greek philosophy. Right? So, um, on what grounds is the gospel delegitimized? Let's say by the Jews. What is, how was it delegitimized? What, what, what was their problem? He didn't become a king. Okay. So the, what what did the Jews want? He says the Jews want this and the Greeks want this. What was the Jews' desire? Proof. Okay. Indisputable proof. Of what? That he was the Messiah. That he was the Messiah. So so the problem was is I think I think Becky, you have the the right idea. It's not just that they wanted signs. They had had plenty of signs. God had done plenty of, I mean, Christ had raised people from the dead. And, but they wanted signs that he was here to do something that they weren't, you know, he wasn't interested in doing. They were looking for a political, patriotic hero, a Maccabee, to rescue them from Rome. Jesus said, I have no interest in doing that. So any sign that pointed to something that was different, they were completely not interested in. And so, uh, so 
they also wanted a, a messiah that wasn't going to rock the political vote. Right? Like this is the structure of our society. We're here. <laughs> we're the Pharisees. We're the Sadducees. We've kind of got our niche. We, we. It was financial. It was all. You know, this is where we're secure in our social status, and they. They were, anything that didn't rock that boat, they were okay with. Jesus didn't come to rescue them politically, and he came to tip that boat over. Right? So, uh, so they were not really interested in those signs. What did the Greeks reject the cross on? Okay. Mm. You also look at they wouldn't have considered that wise. If you look at the principles of Christianity, like self-sacrifice and putting others before yourselves, and you know that doesn't really jive with your what we talked about a moment ago, like your normal, natural instincts of self-preservation and things like that. They they are in conflict, so that would seem like foolishness to them. Okay. So I want to get into just very briefly looking at some of the philosophies that were, and we've, we've probably covered this before, or you might already know this, and it's kind of old news anyway. There, were, there was a, a, a couple, I mean, there's a lot of philosophies, and even within the main branches, there's different groups. Um, there's Stoics. Uh, kind of right off, you kind of know what that is, right? What's a Stoic? What do you think of somebody who's Stoic? No emotions. Okay, not no emotions. What's the other one? Yeah. So, so they they uh, thought that you know true true purpose and value in life was not in frivolous stuff. It was in thinking and making yourself wise. And that was really all there was to, to life. And that was the only value in life, was was thinking. Fun was right out. Now, you had the other, the other side, and you had the Epicureans. Epicureans, they were all about fun, right? that thinking stuff. What good does that catch you? That's boring, right? And most of us were Epicureans in school. And they got, who wants to do homework? Who wants to think? Ah, I want to get out. Summer vacation, right? That is the, the, the kid who lives. So Epicurean, that was a little bit more popular, as you might suggest, right? There was always those two or three kids in school that hated summer. They couldn't wait for the first day of school, right? And we all looked at them as weird. You're strange people. Um... So, so they thought fun, the enjoyment of pleasure, and, and things like that, that's where value is in life. Enjoy life. A few hundred years before Christ, Plato writes his Republic, his book, in which he thought and theorized the ideal, the ideal nation. If we were going to really make something productive... And, and he writes about, uh, you know, how democracy was a failed experiment and, and how we, we needed a republic. 
which would be governed by a philosopher king. A philosopher king would be the, the best way to govern a, a, a country. You know, someone smart but not really concerned about war and stuff like that. And so Jesus addresses this. He says, to these, to these types of people, the cross is, is foolish. They don't understand it. But he makes a statement. Um, I want to look at that verse, uh, verse 21, and kind of unpack this. He said, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. What does that mean? No matter how wise we think we are, no matter how elevated we think we were, there was no way that we would be able to recognize who God is or what he was or what he was capable of on our own by our own imagination and thinking. Okay. And I want to add one thing to that because that's... that's exactly what this is saying with one addition. He says, through the wisdom of God, this was the, this was the setup. In other words, God designed it this way. God wanted us to fight to try to figure out things knowing that we couldn't. That's the wisdom of God. So that he could step in and say, this is the piece you're missing. Oh. You have, a, you have a kid and he's trying to figure it out. You let him fight with it for a while. Let him try to figure it out. And you know a lot of times, I mean, sometimes they're, they're like, it's surprising. And you're like, wow, I didn't think you were going to figure that out. But, uh, but a lot of times you, after they wrestle with it and they're getting really frustrated, then you step in and say, okay. And, their brains are kind of a little bit ready to handle the explanation instead of just giving it to them all the time. And that's what God does. But he says then, um, verse 20, the verse before that, he says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So how does he speak of the victory of the cross over these things? In the end, with all those other things and all the philosophies and great ways of living your life, you still die without God. Mm -hmm. With mm -hmm. the cross and with that victory that it brings, there's more than that. Okay. There's, there's life with him. Right. For eternity after that. But okay. those others, it's, it's, it's meaningless. It doesn't right. mean anything. All of that theorizing and really has become stupid by comparison. But he, it's interesting that he speaks of this as a past event. Now, let's consider the setup. We're in about 56, 55-ish A.D. The cross is about 
20-something years behind you. Had Greek philosophy come to nothing? Had it been defeated? Had the Jewish had the Jewish structure been defeated? It depends. Your answer depends on how we're looking, doesn't it? It was still very present. It was still very powerful. Now, the, the, the Jewish presence in terms of dominating the, the world is going to only last for about 20 more years. Not even. Right, they've got about 16 years, 14 years left before the fall, destruction of Jerusalem, and that kind of ends their dominance. They have like one final hurrah a little bit later, and that's not much of a hurrah. <laughs> and then Greek philosophy is probably going to survive another 200 years slow decline until, until it's finally kind of seen as we see it, as a myth. Right, right, and so so it's kind of odd for for Paul to be writing this and say God has already destroyed this. What do you mean God's destroyed it? I mean, uh, to be a Christian, you're like we feel completely surrounded. So how do you reconcile that? God has brought this to nothing. Okay, so that's certainly one explanation of it. But he, he seems to be referring to the fact that it should be obvious to these people. Hasn't God done this already? Like, like, can't we just look out there and see it? And I think there's an element, even beyond the knowing of it. Yes, the cross happened and, and it's over. Um, there's still an element that should be obvious, even in their day and age, that these things were dying or dead in reality, like you're saying. God had already defeated, and there were signs if he wanted. But Christ's death was doing stuff that the others couldn't do. And specifically with relation to Greek philosophy. But we can even look at the Jewish people, the Judaizers, and you see the hatred, and you see the anger, and you see the angst, and it's not producing. All of their, all of the things that they believe in, things that they consider important, all their goals are slipping. They are less powerful than they were. I mean, it's going to come crashing down, but... But they're less and less and less in influencing the Roman Empire, even now. But the cross was doing things 
and having a tremendous impact in spite of all these things. And here's to look at all these philosophies, the Greek philosophies. They were all centered on what? What what was the goal of these philosophies? Just the right way to live. Okay, the right way to live. How to achieve what? Happiness. How to achieve a better society. And it wasn't working. But underneath, and with all these things surrounding it, here's the church. And here's the church. And God is bringing people from Jewish backgrounds and from Greek backgrounds, and he's putting them together, and they're more or less getting along. Corinth is struggling. But the idea is there that God, if you follow his principles, God can bring these things together and achieve all of the things that Greece and the Jewish structure aren't achieving. Anyway, I just thought of it. Like so many other things that the Greeks would consider foolishness. Mm-hmm. We, we're talking about, you know, like this is the way to bring about a better society and to achieve mm-hmm. happiness. You look at the way Paul rejoices during his sufferings. Mm-hmm. You look at the way the church, you know, rejoices that they were counted worthy to be right. um, like discriminated against or attacked or whatever. You know, those were the things that. You know, they, they thought, well, this is great. We're doing the right thing. And to anybody else around, you're like, you guys are crazy if you're happy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, your, your priority seems screwed up, but, but the, that screwed up priority is, is really right side up. Everybody else is upside down, and, and that was what was changing the world. And so um, so I, I think the evidence of what it's producing... God is working. The church is evidence of the amazing ability of the gospel, of the cross, to take people with different perspectives on the world. Even in in this room, we have a lot of different perspectives on lots of different things, the importance of things. And God brings us together in the same room. And we can all praise God together. It's amazing that God, Greek philosophy couldn't, they got into the same room and started yelling at each other. And Jews get inside of the same room and they start yelling at each other. And I think that, that because we know what the book is about, because we know this book is about divisions, this is where God is, Paul is trying to use this to say this is the ideal and this is possible but you're going to have to um, you're going to have to work the program, right? You're, you're going to have to do this, and you will be. This is the ideal, in other words. It's possible if we give in to God's wisdom. The church is capable of handling diversity. I know that's kind of like, I hate that word. But this is what you have. 
I mean, you, you've got people of radically different ethnic backgrounds in Corinth. Different political ideas, different social ideals, different paths to all crazy stuff when God says, be of one mind, of one judgment. Huh? It's possible. It's possible. All people have to change. Yes, all people have to change. Not just the new people. <laughs> uh, not just this group of people have to change. Not that everybody qualifies. Yeah. Disciples being unqualified, and they weren't like rabbis. Like right. And the church welcomes that, that people can all share their thoughts and everything. They don't have to be a scholar to share their thoughts about the Bible. Sure. I think that's not true with those other. Right. That's true. Those who thought they were wise looked down on those who they considered uneducated. Um, now, what's interesting is is we're we're looking at problems between two different groups. There's internal and external. Now, what, what's what's strange is that he's writing this letter to people in the church. And he explains some external problems. People outside the problem, you know, outside the church have problems. This is strange with what's going on in the church. Have you ever? That, that is odd to me. Right? This is, uh, you know, the Judaizers running around following Paul, telling them they weren't even really a part of the church. They were kind of like the splinter group, trying to force Paul's teaching to not be something. That, that's odd. What do you care? Um, just kind of an American history thing. There's a in the 18 mid 1800s, around 1840 or so, uh, Boston had a church. It was called the Tremont Temple, and it was the first church where. So we're even pre pre Civil War here, where black and white people were in the same church. It's kind of a big deal for that time period, right? And it was formed specifically because the church, the, the Baptist church where they had been, wouldn't allow it. Uh, so, so some of them took off and said, we're doing this ourselves. It, it was the subject of three arsons throughout the 1800s, even as late as 1875 or so, like 20-something years after the Civil War. Like, what do you care? It's not your church. You don't even go here. Why do you care that people here meet together and get along? What do you care? But sometimes people outside of the situation really care about what you're doing. It's so odd. It's so dumb. But a lot of times the combustion comes from inside. Um, as we say, the church church unity requires everybody to buy in. All of us have to be bought in to the cross and, and what the gospel is. Um, so there's all these different backgrounds. What if the Jews still hold to their ideas of an eventual political salvation? 
it's, it's going to blow apart. What, what if the Greeks still are focusing on one of these various philosophies they have and, and starting to mix that with the gospel? It's going to make a dangerous situation. And eventually it does. And eventually Gnosticism comes out of this. So I want to look and turn with the, the few minutes we have at a it's easy for us to look back then and point out things that um, were going on then. and It's history and it's not much more than that. But to look at the way the gospel is foolishness today. How is the gospel foolishness today? Okay, a lot of your priorities are the same, right? The self-enjoyment. Uh, we have the uh, we have a desire for political saviors, right? So, so that some of that stuff creeps into the church. There's, uh, there's the educated part of society. What's that? Okay. Uh, so, so and we, we talked about that. The subjective. Well, there's this philosophy and that philosophy, and uh, there's this utopian, right? There's utopian ideas, much like Plato's theories about a utopia, basically, um, the perfect republic, and, and there's all these ideas. You're, you're right, Mark. That are that are just rehashed versions of, of what there was. I want to look at Second Peter chapter 3. And I want to read the first six verses of this. Beloved, I now write to you this second letter, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own desires and saying, where, when you pay attention to this, this, this prediction of what people are going to say eventually, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers slept, all things consider God continue as they had since the beginning. They willfully forget this. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, if I was, I don't know... Uh, some of you might have science backgrounds, you might not. There's a guy by the name of Jean Baptiste Lamarck. Uh, he was he was the guy that influenced his writings influenced Charles Darwin. He was the first to to really flesh out an idea of 
of this idea of, of long, slow changes produce what we have today. Now, if I was in biblical language trying to predict this theory, this is Peter's prediction is exactly how I would phrase it. Since our fathers slept, all things continue as they have from the beginning. And this idea. Slow and slow and slow. And that produces what we have today. And there's two things in here that are deep that that we see the gospel delegitimized in. What two things are delegitimized? In later times, as as Peter is predicting, later times two things are really going to be we could say a third, but but I want to look at two main ones. Okay, so so that's, that's what I say we, we we could we could add a third one in there, and that would be where what they're what they're really getting at is there's no God, right? And that's their conclusion. Well, God, you guys have been talking about God, and it never happened. And they do that on the foundation of two ideas, and he addresses them. One is creation, and the other is the flood. And on these two premises, you'll find most of your criticism somehow today of, of, of the Bible. One, the creation. You can't possibly believe that. And two, we, we could just maybe summarize. The, the flood is the one that they point to, you know, that couldn't possibly have happened, and you a litany of reasons why. And it's to get rid of the supernatural. And on that premise, all supernatural is, is done away with. And that's the, that's the lie of, 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 our, of, our, of our time. That, well, unless something has a, a physical laboratory possibility explanation, it can't be accepted as true. And Peter perfectly describes our time. Perfectly sums it up. This is the criticism of the world around us. This is, this is why what we believe is seen as foolishness. And Christ, God, Peter, Paul. The, the, listen, what is considered foolishness is what destroys everything that they're attempting to do. Do not feel cowed into agreeing with them. It is just as important for me. I can look back and say, oh, they should not have bought into Plato's theories. That's nice. They're in the middle of a society that accepts those things as true. Every bit as much as the educated people around me tell me that I'm the product of millions of years of changes and slow changes. It's all around us. And God says, resist it, because that stuff is foolish. And God uses the things that are considered foolish, a belief in the supernatural, a belief in miracles, a belief in all these things. God has used all that to make the world a civilized place and to accomplish unity and to accomplish all the positive changes 
of society for the last 2,000 years have been premised on the cross, not on these ideas. Any other thoughts as we close? All right, you're dismissed.